I may not be very good at math, but I'd like to show you how 1 plus 1 can equal 1 and how that 1 can be divided by 2. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of their lives so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this episode, we are going to finish off our four-part series where we are thinking biblically about what human beings are made of. To give you a quick refresher up to this point, we started off by talking about monism, which is the idea that we are made of a single part. We are just natural creatures, and our thoughts and things like that are all physically explainable. We then discussed how human beings are a trichotomy. In other words, we are three parts. We are body, soul, and spirit. Talking about the pros and cons of that theory. We discussed dichotomy, again, where we are physical and spiritual. We have a soul or we have a spirit. They are, and we discussed especially how soul and spirit are used synonymously throughout the Bible to where whenever it talks about the soul or it talks about the spirit, it's talking about the same thing. And with all these views, we talked about ways that they are strong or credible or biblically sound. We talked about areas where they are weak or struggling or ultimately just have cons attached to them. And all this time, I've been hinting at another view coming. Now, to this point, you might be thinking, okay, well, we've done one, two, and three. So either human beings at this point are going to be four parts or they're going to be zero parts. And maybe all of this is just some grand illusion that we're dreaming but what we're going to talk about today is a viewpoint or an understanding of how we as humans are made that is very rarely discussed. And for most of my listeners, I assume this is going to be maybe the first time that you are introduced to this. Now, I'm going to be calling this conditional unity. And what conditional unity means is that human beings are made of one thing. We're made of body and soul. But those two things are, in a way, meshed together or are combined or are intertwined so closely that we would not be considered two distinctly separate parts like we talked about the last episode. But ultimately, we are one unified being with a physical and spiritual component to that single being. Now, as I was looking at my show notes as I was writing this and as I've kind of scrolled uh, down and looked at it, this is going to be a bit of a beefy one. So as always, as a courtesy and maybe in, for this episode as a mercy to you, I will have timestamps down in the show notes so that you can, if you need to refresh yourself, uh, jump to new sections, however they are useful to you, they will be down in the show notes letting you know when topics change throughout this episode. So just jumping straight in to the basics of conditional unity. Like I said, this is going to be a new topic or a new understanding for a lot of people. And even though it's new for a lot of us, doesn't mean that it's a new belief itself. Uh, this is actually even commonly discussed uh, throughout maybe the more popular term as holistic dualism. Holistic meaning the entirety of something and dualism meaning two parts. So I, like I said, I'm going to be using the term conditional unity and I'm using that term instead of holistic dualism for two reasons. First, the term conditional unity is how I was first introduced to this theory or to this understanding. It is a term that is used by a man named 
Millard Erickson, and he's not the one that I learned it from, but it, from what I can tell, he is the one who kind of popularized using this term for it. So I'm using it just because it's what I'm more comfortable with, and I'm also choosing that term because I honestly just don't like the word holistic dualism. Within theology, there is just a, a problem with the idea of dualism that I'm just not a huge fan of, and so just for, for my own sake, for my own, I don't know, peace of mind maybe, I'm just going to call it conditional unity. And I think this term uh, itself comes from this idea that we are body and soul. We are united into a single being, but it is conditioned on the understanding that we are alive for that unity to take place. Now, all that being said, whether it's conditional unity, whether it's holistic dualism, this isn't actually, like I said, a new topic, a new discussion. And even in terms of historical writings, we can even date this discussion all the way back to the 1200s with a man named Thomas Aquinas. And so even then, he isn't someone who created it, but instead he is someone who was articulating something that the early church had believed up to that point. But as with many things throughout church history, what people believed wasn't maybe officially put into writing or wasn't really focused on until it really needed to be. And so as we're launching into this, I just want to make it clear, this isn't some new, fancy, maybe even heretical thing. This is something that does have historical backing and a historical basis. But like I said, and as we'll discuss towards the end of the episode, this is something that isn't talked about really ever. Now, as I've already kind of hinted at in terms of where this might fall between our discussions of one, two, and three parts, this really falls in between monism, which is one part, and dichotomy, which is that we are made of two distinct parts. Now, where it sets itself apart from dichotomy is that dichotomy almost paints us, like we discussed last time, as two separate entities. We have our body and we have our soul, and we have this idea that the real us is who we are inside. It's our thoughts and our emotions. It's our soul is who we are. We're just cruising around in a body. And so we have this idea that when we die and we're separated from our bodies, that that's fine because our bodies are, you know, a, a thing that are useful to keep us here on earth, but they aren't necessary. They aren't needed. They aren't even really ultimately maybe who we are or a part of who we truly are. Uh, we also see the issue within dichotomy is that the two don't directly impact one another, meaning that what you do to your body isn't going to have an effect on the health of your soul and the health of your soul isn't going to have an effect on the health of your body because, again, they are two separate things. It's like a car and, a, and the car's driver. The health of the driver isn't going to impact the health of the car and vice versa. So... It does agree with dichotomy that we do have a body and soul, and it also agrees with monism in the sense that we are a single entity. Because for all the issues that we discuss with monism, what it gets right is that we are what we are. Everything about us is the core of who we as human beings are. However, conditional unity would pick up and say that, yes, we are one, but we are body and soul. We have physical and spiritual components to us. And now we'll get into this in the more nitty gritty when I go through the con or the pros of why this theory may make the most sense out of everything we've talked about. But essentially what this would say is that our, our souls are essentially a part of our physical DNA. They are so 
entwined into who we are, that they are not just this thing where we're a soul driving around a body, nor are we simply a body, but we are body and soul that are somehow, by God's design, so intricately connected and linked together that they are effectively one thing. Now, I'll give you two very imperfect examples just to hopefully try to get your mind moving in the right direction. Because like I said, I know that this can be a very hard thing to wrap our minds around, especially because it's just not something anyone talks about. But think of the color green. Now, in order to make the color green, you have to take yellow and you have to take blue and you have to blend them together. Now, when those two are are together correctly, they create a single color, the color green. Now, you can, of course, separate those pigments back out, but when you do that, the yellow is no longer green and the blue is no longer green. They are not meant to be separated in order for the color green to exist. And conditional unity would say that same thing, that you can you can separate our souls from our bodies, but by doing that, we are no longer a whole and complete person. We are meant to be forever part of this physical body of ours. Maybe another way to think about it is if we were to se- separate our skeleton from the rest of our body, we could keep existing. We would still be who we are, but we would be wildly incomplete. We would be very lacking without that skeleton in our bodies. And so what we're going to be looking at is how the body and the soul exist, but they were never, ever meant to be separated. The soul being apart from the body is actually a very foreign concept to how God has designed and created human beings to function. And so the idea that when we die, we are separated is true, right? Our souls do go somewhere, but that is not ultimately a perfect thing. It's not the ideal thing. It's not how we are designed to exist. And so as you're listening to this, you might be thinking, well, you know, aren't we just splitting hairs here? I mean, why not just call this dichotomy, but with some, you know, maybe extra precautions thrown in. And the big problem is that dichotomy, as we discussed last time, just like the other, you know, all three of the things we've discussed so far, they make sense biblically within the confines of where we read about them. So when the Bible's talking about the soul, that makes sense. When the Bible's talking about the spirit or the body, those all make sense. It makes sense to paint human beings as two parts or even three parts we can make a a more difficult argument for. But the main issues that I was pointing out with all these is that when we're talking about us being two parts, and I'm just going to refer to it as two parts because that is, like I said, what I believe is the most biblically accurate understanding of the human body between the three that we've discussed so far. But when we're talking about a human being being two separate distinct parts, like we talked about at the end of last episode, there are some definite consistency issues that come up with how we understand the entire Bible and what it means for us almost at a practical level in terms of, okay, how does this actually look in our daily lives? How does this look throughout history? And how does this look in other areas of the Bible? So, What I want to do is, as we're looking at conditional unity, is look at how this understanding of the human body and the human soul and how they are effectively a physical and spiritual thing that are a single unit, a single thing, 
how it's not just interesting. It doesn't just make sense within a, a few Bible verses, but instead it fits the entire narrative of the Bible. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at how this understanding of our soul and our body being so connected, how it fits from Genesis all the way through Revelation and in between there, how this makes the most sense and fits best our understanding and our experience in terms of our daily lives and the things we think about and the things we do, how all of this actually makes the most sense for us not to be a soul driving around a body, but instead a body with a soul that is never meant to be separated from it. And so let's start maybe in the most obvious place, and that is looking at how conditional unity supports what we see in original creation, and it helps us to understand why death is so unnatural and so painful. So we've got a lot of scripture to go through, but let's start with perhaps the simplest one that we're going to look at in this episode, and that is uh, the first part of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, which says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. All right, like I said, simple enough. So here, God is declaring that his original creation, before the fall, before sin entered the world, it was perfect. It was as he wanted it. It was very good. And so an important thing to realize when we see that God called this very good is that creation was how he wanted it to be. Creation was designed to function in a certain way. And had sin never entered the world, creation would have continued on operating as it was always meant to important thing that we need to realize for the sake of this discussion is that that means is that when God made man, when he made Adam, Adam had body and soul, and it was very good. It was how he was meant to be. And that's going to be the kind of theme of this entire episode is that body and soul together as one is how human beings have always been designed to be. And anything less than that is imperfect. It is not how we're meant to exist. And now we know that after God declared it very good, we don't know how long, but we can assume that it wasn't too long before sin broke creation. So Adam and Eve sinned, they disobeyed God, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we know that through that, as God warned, death entered the world. And now, I know that there's people who have read this and they understand that maybe God wasn't talking just about physical death because they didn't actually physically die at that time, but instead it's a spiritual death or a spiritual condemnation. And yes, that's very true. We see that in Romans, uh, we can see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, but I just want to focus on verses 14 to 15 in here. Again, I would encourage you to go and uh, look at the bigger context yourself, but for sake of our discussion... It says in Romans 5, verses 14 to 15, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So what's being said here, uh, putting it somewhat plainly, is that death entered the world. It entered the the reality of humanity. 
And that death is a spiritual kind of death. It is a guilt before God. We are spiritually condemned because of what this one man did. But through Jesus Christ, our condemnation is lifted and that death sentence is removed. And we no longer have to be under condemnation of God's wrath for having broken his law and having inherited Adam's sin. Because through Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of sin from the free gift of salvation by the grace of God. So yes, in that way, this death that we're talking about is a spiritual thing, because here it's contrasting this spiritual death that started with Adam and the spiritual life that we have through Jesus Christ. But we also know that physical corruption and death also entered the world and that it broke creation itself. We can see this discussed in Romans eight nineteen to 21. We can see how creation itself broke when it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here, just talking about how creation is just waiting for God to make all things new again. And we also see how death was given to humanity and that we were, because of Adam's sin, ultimately destined, if you will, to die. And that is because we lost access to that thing that God had apparently given to Adam and Eve to give them eternal living and freedom from, from any risk of death. And this is in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, which says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground which, from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we see that God, you know, basically booted Adam and Eve out because they understood how to sin, how to disobey God, how to effectively be their own gods. And because of that, God cut them off from the eternal life granted by the tree of life. And when I say eternal life, I mean literally physical eternal life, because here we see that they weren't just perpetually living forever under their own power, but that God had given them this tree that would sustain them and give them everlasting life. But because of their sin, they were cut off from that. And now they were meant to experience something that God never originally meant for them to experience when he called creation very good. And what this ultimately means is that death is a much bigger deal than maybe we originally realized that it was. Because if man was created to live forever by being nourished by the tree of life, if he was never meant to be dead, and therefore he was never meant to be separated his soul from his body, then what that means is that death is actually a very unnatural thing because we were never meant to experience it. In the perfection of God's creation, death was not meant to be something that we would go through. And so when we die, we experience an imperfect state because even though we are free from the, you know, the pain and the sin and the suffering of this world, we are still outside of our body. We are without a critical part of God's creation because when he made us, he made us to be whole and complete. 
And this is why part of God's plan of redemption isn't just saving us from our sin, which is a very necessary part of his plan. But when we talk about Christ's victory on the cross, his victory over death actually has a physical aspect to that victory in that we get to experience a blessing and a benefit from what Christ won on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51-57, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. But when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want a bigger context of what's being talked about here and a bigger look at why our souls are so excited to look forward to our glorified bodies, look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 through 57. But to really sum up what makes this passage so exciting is that one, it's talking about how death isn't permanent for us, that Jesus Christ, through the victory that he has given us, we will take these these perishable bodies, these things that are subjected to disease and weakness and death, and they will be done away with. And we will not just live forever as spirits or souls, but we will live forever as people with new bodies, perfect bodies. It talks about how they will be imperishable. They will be immortal. They will not be corrupt any longer. And so what Christ accomplished on the cross isn't just freedom from sin, but freedom from suffering, freedom from the physical corruption of this world. And he won the ability for his people to live forever as they were always meant to, as people with perfect bodies and perfect souls together on the earth forever. And we have that through Jesus Christ. Now, The reality of why that matters is best understood through conditional unity, because conditional unity says, why did Christ's death on the cross have to have a physical victory to it? Why did death have to be conquered in a spiritual sense, but also in the physical sense in terms of the corruption and everything? That is because Jesus Christ didn't just randomly give us these imperishable bodies in the future. No, he's giving us that thing that we need to be complete and whole so that we can go back to the world like it was in Eden, where things were very good. If we were just souls driving around in a body or anything else, we wouldn't need that. We wouldn't need these bodies. This wouldn't be something that Jesus Christ specifically set out to do for us in our place. But If it's true that our souls need our bodies, then it makes sense that our good and perfect Jesus Christ, our Savior, would not just save us from sin, but save us from an eternity of being separated from that thing that we need to make us whole. So that's just point number one. Like I said, this is going to be a beefy topic. Moving on to the next one, and that is that conditional unity best helps us understand the origin of the soul. 
Now, at the end of the last episode, I told you that if you wanted to kind of be prepared for this episode to go listen to my episode on Traducianism from June 2nd, 2021, and I will have that episode noted down in the show notes. But I had said that that will help you to better understand this idea. But for those of you who haven't listened to that one yet, or you listened to it and forgot, I will just give you a brief kind of nutshell of what that episode talked about and why conditional unity is a perfect extension of what I believe the Bible truly teaches about where we get our souls. So ultimately that was part of a three-part series and it concluded with the understanding, looking at God's word, that our souls are a product of the reproduction of our parents. God doesn't just stitch together a brand new soul at conception or at birth. God doesn't have this big vault of souls somewhere and he just shoves one into a new baby. But instead, we saw that, you know, God created everything in six days and he, everything that he created, he created ultimately one time. We don't see any evidence in his word that he's revealed to us that he is still creating anything. And so in order for his creation to persist and continue... God designed his creation to reproduce. And, you know, animals, you know, squirrels make squirrels, sharks make sharks. Human beings make human beings. Now, what sets us apart as human beings is that we aren't just physical creatures, but we are physical and spiritual. And so in that episode, we looked at the reality that if God designed us to reproduce, and if we are physical and spiritual, then how God designed us is that just as our Physical DNA is a product of our our father's sperm and our mother's egg coming together and carrying that physical DNA and combining to create a new person, us. We would also say that our spiritual DNA acts very much in the same way in that we gain a portion of our soul that is carried through in the, the DNA information from the father's sperm. And likewise, the mother's egg carries her portion of the spiritual DNA. They come together and they create a brand new soul. And so we as human beings are a blend of our parents, both physically and spiritually. And now conditional unity, as I'm sure you can maybe see where I'm going with this, is a an extension of this because this helps us to better understand how our souls are so linked to our physical DNA and that our souls are just as much an equal part of us as our physical bodies. It's not that we are just these soul containers and somehow a new our father and mother's souls kind of ride together when they are reproducing and somehow a new soul is made, but instead our spiritual component is so intertwined. It is so linked invisibly to our physical DNA that obviously that is how a new soul would be created. Why would it not be? Why would it not be that a human being that is so combined and so blended together physically and spiritually that when they're created or when they are reproducing and creating new human beings, that whatever process creates them physically would also be the process that creates them spiritually. And so again, if our understanding of human reproduction of the soul is true, as I set out to prove in a very long episode that I, I've discussed previously, then This goes to further cement the idea or the reason or the understanding that our souls are so 
linked to who we are, that they are never, ever meant to be separated because they, it's not just, we are body and we are soul as if they are two different things, but they are all one blended together and are very much a part of everything that we do. So those are two things that help us kind of understand how the creation account, how God has designed the world helps to support this idea that the human body and soul are, are meant to be one. They are a single unit and never meant to be separated. But let's also talk about at a practical level, how this affects us today, how, how we can see this active today. Now, the big one that I want to talk about, and this is actually the one that really, I think helped me come around on the idea of conditional unity. And that is the reality that there is a definite and clear link between our physical and our spiritual suffering. So I'm just going to talk about suffering and you just nod your head wherever you are if you understand or agree with what I'm talking about. So think about what happens to your spiritual life sometimes when you are so just knocked down, drag out sick, or you are injured or experiencing something like chronic pain. Think about what happens to your Bible reading when you're sick and miserable and have 103 temperature. What happens to your prayer life? What happens to your excitement for spiritual things, the things of God, learning, praising him and things like that? When you're sick or maybe especially when you're hurt, injured, especially if you experience chronic pain, how much more tempted are you towards sin? How much easier is it for you to get angry? How much more likely are you to be selfish and not care if you're hurting someone, not care if you're taking advantage of someone, but you are just very focused on yourself? How likely are you to overindulge in something or give in to gluttony? And by that, I mean, you know, binge watching Netflix at the expense of doing more important things or eating to find some level of comfort or, you know, doing any number of things more than we should, but we just do it because it feels good in that moment. And we aren't as concerned about the spiritual ramifications or the spiritual implications of what we're doing. When you're suffering, how likely are you to seek refuge in pleasure? Now, this can be any number of things. It can be sexual pleasure. It can be looking at things online. It can be alcohol or drugs. It can, again, be food, video games, whatever. But how likely are you to, the more you suffer, the more you are seeking pleasure, seeking salvation from your circumstances in other things besides God? I'll give you uh, two examples of this from my own life. So some of you know that I suffer with uh, chronic daily pain. Uh, Basically, every moment of my day, I am in some level of very noticeable pain. And on the days where I am especially suffering, where I am especially struggling, I really struggle to care about reading my Bible. I am not as invested in this ministry. My prayer life is a real struggle. Or, and I, I, th- I thought this was just hilarious uh, example of God's providence when I was working on this. But right now I have two little girls, a three and a five year old who are sick. And as I was working on the outline for this particular episode and this particular point when I was, when I was ending my uh, notes on the link between physical and spiritual suffering, I had to laugh because I realized that I had to keep stopping when I was taking these notes because when my girls are sick, they are much more likely to either be very selfish and angry and bickering between themselves, you know, a three and a five year old, you know how they do, 
or they are much more likely to just disobey things that they know they are supposed to do or not do things that they are told to do because they don't feel well. And that is something that I even uh, talked to my five-year-old about. I, I told her, you know, when you're sick, remember that you struggle to make good choices on obedience. And so I encourage her to nap. I encourage her to rest, to, you know, drink water, to do things to help her physically so that she is less tempted towards disobedience and sin. And I think if we kept going on and on with this, everyone would find something that they agree with where you think back to that one time that you were just so sick and you felt, you know, so guilty maybe because you just, you knew you should read your Bible, but you couldn't do it with as much diligence as you normally would or as much passion or excitement. Or maybe you just skipped your Bible reading altogether that day and you feel so guilty for it. You know, why do we do that? Why is it that when we are physically sick, our spiritual disciplines are self-control over our sinful desires or our sinful choices, why do those things suffer so much just because our bodies are suffering? If we were truly a body and a soul that are two separate things or anything else, it wouldn't make sense that our physical body would somehow have such a massive and noticeable impact on our spiritual health. But not to be outdone, whenever we are experiencing anything spiritual. It can be good, it can be bad, but I'm going to focus on when we're in sin. So when we are in sin, our physical life suffers as well. Think about the effects that things like depression and anxiety have on our body. Think about what stress in general does. It gives us tense muscles, muscle knots, it can give us an upset stomach. Uh, If we are consistently angry, the angrier we are, the more damage that we can actually do to our physical heart. Really think about those things. Why is it that when we are feeling sinful things, it has a negative impact on our body? Our doctors can actually do tests and see that because of our what they would call emotional health or mental health, but because of those things, our bodies are suffering as well. And we even see this in God's word. We see David's sin, what we would assume is with uh, Bathsheba, when he was hiding his sin about what he had done in getting Uriah killed and just all the mess that he caused there. But it says in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So pause right there and listen to what David is saying. When he kept silent, when he was living in sin, he was suffering physically. He talks about how, you know, yes, God's hand was heavy upon him in the guilt, but he also talks about just physically there were manifestations, you know, his his bones wasted away. There was groaning all day long. His strength was dried up. He was physically frail and damaged and broken because he was harboring sin. But look what happens. When he confessed his sin, it says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so here, this is a, a conclusion where he has hope. He has upliftingness. He has relief from his confession of sin. And so just look what's happening here. When he hid his sin, he was suffering. When he confessed his sin, he found joy and relief again. He found happiness and satisfaction in the Lord. And this is, once again, a picture of how because his soul, his spiritual part of him was suffering, was hiding sin. It was in agony. It was sick. His physical body was feeling it as well. And again, 
Why is this happening? Because the previous views can't accurately explain it if they're going to be consistent. Because if our body is indeed separate from our soul, then what happens to one should not affect the other. If the body is sick, the soul should still be alive and healthy. It should still be desiring to do all the physical are the, all these spiritual disciplines. It should still desire to reject sin and embrace God's holiness and not give in to those sin temptations that we all know when we aren't feeling well, whether we're sick, whether we're in pain, whether we're injured, whatever it is. And likewise, if these are two separate things, then our sin should not cause physical medical issues in our bodies. And the hard thing with this is that we sit here and say, but they do. So that doesn't prove anything. But that's my point, is that we know from experience that physical and spiritual health are so closely tied together that one will have a direct impact on another. But think about it like this. Let's go back to what we talked about with how we're not just driving around, a, you know, we're not souls driving around a car. So let's take an actual car as an example. A car and a driver are two very separate things. They aren't just kind of closely related. They're not just made of different things, but still one. They are literally two different things entirely. One can be separate from the other with zero problems. And what that also means is that when the driver has a flu, the car isn't impacted by it. The car doesn't run worse because the driver has a flu. Likewise, if the car has some rust, it doesn't impact the driver's health. Whatever is happening to one has no impact on the other. But when we look at our human bodies, when we look at our lives, we see that there is a very intimate relationship between our physical and spiritual components. They are clearly linked so much so that it can really only be explained that the two are actually connected and that they are two things working together to create a whole person so that when that person suffers in one aspect, they are naturally going to suffer in the other aspect because they are all meshed together perfectly by God's design rather than being two separate things. Now, another discussion that we can have about kind of the real world or real life is that conditional unity helps us even better define or understand why it is that we as God's people should value all human life. And now I need to start this by saying that if you don't believe in conditional unity, that doesn't mean that you hate people or that you are okay with murder or anything like that. What I'm getting at is that by understanding what conditional unity implies, it gives us even more reason to care about all life and why we should protect life. And I'm going to talk about abortion in a way that might make some people uncomfortable. And I'm doing that because I think we need to be very real and not just hide behind these nice things we say or try to cover up realities or ignore questions that we don't want to answer. So, if you're following this podcast, I'm going to assume that you hate abortion because you know that God hates abortion. But there is a very real problem and a difficult question that Christians need to answer when it comes to the problem of abortion. And that is, if when a human being dies or when a baby dies, they are sent to heaven, as I, I believe and would argue that they do. If that happens, then shouldn't we as Christians actually be very big advocates of abortion? Because if by killing a baby before they are old enough to have chosen sin on their own, 
then isn't it actually a mercy to send them directly to heaven rather than letting them grow up and hope that God calls them to salvation? And we don't like that question. And we shouldn't like that question. It's a very uncomfortable one, but it's one that is something to consider. Because if we believe that the human body is just kind of whatever, it's a throwaway thing, then why do we care about protecting the unborn life? Why do we care about protecting life in general? Because human beings are just kind of on this earth, just passing on through. And we have this idea that the spiritual eternity is the thing that we should focus on. And so as Christians, why are we uncomfortable with dying? I mean, despite all our bravado, there is a discomfort that we have about death. And, you know, with, you know, children, especially who, if we would say, and again, I say rightfully so, if we would say that children who pass away or are killed in the womb or, you know, whatever horrible things happen, when those heartbreaking things occur, then shouldn't we be glad? Because that means that they are directly with the father. Now we would come with the argument and say, well, it's wrong because it's murder. And God says that murder is evil. And that's true. But why does God care about murder? What is it about our physical forms that he is so concerned with? Because we're told that we don't need to worry about those who can kill just the body, but the one that can kill the body and soul. So why does God actually have a problem with people breaking human bodies, but not breaking animal bodies or not breaking trees? What is it about the human body that is so unique? And we would say, oh, well, we're God's image bearers. And that's why he has a problem with that. But again, why is that something that God has said is worth protecting, is worth honoring, and that we as God's people should not be okay with destroying? And here's where I'm going to come in with conditional unity. And I'm going to say that because the entire being of a person is their physical and spiritual, that even though we could say, oh, well, you know, abortion should actually be celebrated because it sends babies right to heaven, or every other argument we make against abortion— or what someone might say for abortion, ultimately, where conditional unity will support why we value all life. And I'm not just talking about unborn, but that's a very big one and one that is close to home for a lot of people. But the reason that we value and protect all life, and we just, we don't want to kill people. We don't want to, you know, let people just euthanize the elderly because they're in the way or to kill homeless people or people who are mentally ill or physically deformed or whatever. The reason we have such a problem with that is because we are enforcing something unnatural on those people. None of them are meant to experience death ever. That is not by God's design as we've discussed. And to introduce it to them prematurely is to ultimately take part in what sin is, and that is to introduce death and remove life from a human being that they were meant to experience. And so, again, boiling this down, whatever your belief on the human soul, that does not mean that you are for abortion. My point is simply to say that, rationally speaking, only conditional unity helps us best understand why the argument that, oh, well, Christians should be for abortion because it sends babies right to heaven doesn't work. Because regardless of what good may come of it, it is still against God's design for human life to end it. Now, we've talked about Genesis. We've talked about kind of our daily lives or how we today can think about it. So why don't we wrap up the support for conditional unity and go straight to the end of the Bible and talk about the book of Revelation. 
and that will cover two of our last points. Now, the first one that I want to talk about is how conditional unity explains the book of Revelation and the need for a resurrection. Now, when we talk about Revelation, I've said in the past, we can get very distracted by it. Revelation has a lot of fantastical elements, and today it can fuel a lot of political observation or political fear or can play into political agendas. Uh, Maybe we just act like Indiana Jones with it and we want to excavate all these hidden treasures and find the secrets and see the secret codes and things like that. But ultimately, the book of Revelation really just shows us the completion of God's plan throughout history and the victory of Jesus Christ. Now, within that plan that God allows us to see, we see that a necessary part of his plan is for all people to be resurrected. And now one thing we know about God is that he doesn't just do things randomly. He doesn't do things without cause. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the resurrections that we see in the book of Revelation. And I want us to ask ourselves, why? Why does God feel necessary to add this extra step into his plan? What is it about a bodily resurrection where everyone is literally brought back to life and put in their body? What is it about that that is so necessary for God's plan that he has to do it? Because it's what ultimately is is the perfect way to go. So first, Jesus Christ himself gives us a very quick and basic layout of the fact that there will be resurrections in the future. This is in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29 where he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there are two resurrections that Christ talks about, and these are further defined or further seen in the book of Revelation. The first we see is that the saints are bodily resurrected given their glorified bodies, and they will reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. Now, we see this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And this says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So again, a big text summed up, but the saints are resurrected here. Those whose sins were forgiven and are found in Jesus Christ, or as we talked about in my episodes on the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast, those who especially resisted the Antichrist, didn't take his mark and were faithful to God. And again, go check out those episodes to understand what the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast are. But we see here that they are resurrected and they will reign with Jesus Christ physically, bodily, on the earth for a thousand years. Now, why can't they just reign as souls? What is so necessary or important about their bodies? It's worth thinking about, but let's continue. And now we're going to see the second resurrection, and this is where God will resurrect everybody else. And this will include God's enemies before this 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. And I think that we can make the argument that this would also include those who have died during the thousand years of Christ. So this would be those who 
were faithful to Christ and also those who were born in this 1,000-year kingdom and, despite Jesus Christ being physically on the earth, still rejected him, still fought against him, and died in their rebellion. And so we're going to see this, just jumping ahead a few verses, in Revelation chapter 20, and this will be verses 12 and 13. And it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So here, again, this question that we have to ask ourselves, why do these people need to be resurrected physically and given bodies in order to stand before God for judgment? Why couldn't they just be judged when they died and their spirits passed through? Why couldn't God just call all souls in front of him and judge them there? Why in God's perfect plan is it necessary for these physical bodies to have their souls back so that they can stand before God and be judged? Well, conditional unity explains why God works this way. It is because the entire person has to stand before God. They are guilty, not just their souls, but their physical bodies. Everything that they are has to stand before God's judgment, and all of them has to face God's judgment. Again, our bodies are not throwaways. Our bodies aren't meaningless. They aren't lesser parts of us. Our body and our soul are meant to be one so much so that for God to judge us, either to see us as blameless because of the blood of Jesus Christ or to see us as guilty because of our sins not being covered by Jesus Christ, he resurrects us physically to fulfill his entire plan. And then our next evidence or our next support for this is going to basically just springboard off of our discussion of the bodily resurrection. And that is is how conditional unity helps us to understand heaven and hell and our true eternity or our true eternal destiny. Because what conditional unity does is it helps us to better understand why a lot of people's misguided ideas about heaven and hell just don't work biblically. And by that, I mean that if you were to ask almost any Christian about the afterlife and say, you know, what happens when someone dies? You know, what does, you know, what does, what happens to you as a Christian forever? What happens to someone who doesn't have their sins forgiven forever? And most people are going to say this. They're going to say that if you're a Christian, you get to spend eternity in heaven. You get to be with God forever up in heaven. Your soul will be with God. But if your sins have not been forgiven and you die you are guilty of those sins and you will spend an eternity forever in hell. But as we've talked about before in this podcast, heaven and hell are not the eternal destiny of anyone who's lived on earth. Heaven and hell are waiting areas. They are the waiting room at the dentist office while you're waiting to go get your teeth drilled. If you know you die and <laughs> don't have your sins forgiven, you know, you can look forward to an eternity of going to the dentist, I guess. But I'm sorry. Seriously, though, heaven and hell are spiritual places. They are not a place that we can physically go. We cannot physically go to heaven. We cannot physically go and exist in hell. They are spiritual places for spiritual beings. Heaven is for the spiritual beings that have not rebelled against God. And hell is for those spiritual beings who ultimately did. And 
what we need to realize is that we are not spiritual beings. Because again, we are not just souls. We are souls and bodies. And so heaven and hell cannot possibly be our eternal destination because for God's perfect plan to come into play, we have to be fully reunited with everything that we are. We have to be reunited with our glorified body. And what that glorified body is, is ultimately the body that we saw of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. They will be perfect. They will be without sickness, without pain, and they will never experience death. And that is what awaits those who are found in Jesus Christ is we aren't going to be in heaven forever. We're going to be in heaven for a time until God's plan is fulfilled so much that we are resurrected physically, our souls reuniting, not with these broken down bodies, but with perfect bodies. And we see this in Revelation chapter 21, verses one to four. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, what we're seeing here is a new physical universe. We see that the new heaven and new earth come because the old heaven and the old earth had passed away. Now, let's not get confused and think, oh, God's remaking his spiritual kingdom. No, it's it. this is a callback to Genesis where God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the, the sky and space and earth physical matter. So God basically, in a sense, starts from scratch, remaking things after his plan of salvation and redemption has followed through. And what we see here is not that we will dwell with God in heaven forever, but instead, what were people crying from the throne? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. So God will be with us. He will be on this earth or not this earth, obviously the new earth the one that's not all broken because of us. But that is what we can look forward to is that God will dwell with us and we will live with him forever in, in perfection with these glorified bodies that we can look forward to. But we also see that hell is not the eternal destiny of people because we see that those who are in hell are going to be resurrected to judgment. So let's look again at Revelation 20, 13 to 15. And instead of looking at the fate of everyone, let's look at what's going to happen. So the sea gives up the dead, death and Hades give up the dead who are in them. And that would be our understanding of hell. And these people are judged. So these people are resurrected from wherever they are. They are resurrected and judged according to what they've done. And then what happens? It says in verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So what happens to hell? It's actually destroyed. This waiting room is effectively wiped out. It is thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what the lake of fire is, is a whole different discussion. But what we do know is that the lake of fire is not hell. Hell is a waiting room. It is this Hades that's discussed. And it is going to be thrown into the lake of fire once it has been emptied of all the souls in it. Because remember, 
all the souls who are in there now, today, at this moment, they are going to be taken out of hell. They're going to be resurrected into their bodies and they will stand before God in judgment. And how do we know that they don't go back to hell? Because of what happens in verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is where everything that God is getting rid of is going. Death and Hades are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is thrown into the lake of fire. And the resurrected guilty are also thrown into the lake of fire. And again, what this does is this continues to reinforce that need, that necessity for a physical resurrection. The whole person has to be resurrected, body and soul, in order to stand before God in judgment. When that happens, God doesn't just kill them and send their soul back to hell, but that whole person is sentenced to the lake of fire along with death and hell. Or if these people are forgiven, then that whole person spends eternity with God. First, those who are resurrected and reign for a thousand years with Christ, but then everyone else is also resurrected. And if their name is in the Lamb's book of life, they will spend an eternity with God in those resurrected bodies. So what we've seen so far is a lot. And so I want to just briefly touch on a last point. We'll go to the summary of everything we've discussed, and then we will knock out some problems that come from conditional unity. Now, the last evidence or the last support is that what conditional unity ultimately does is it is a necessary refinement of dichotomy. It's an improvement on it. Like I said, in the last episode, we explored how the soul and the spirit are the same thing, that human beings have a physical and a spiritual component, and God's word has a lot to say about both of them. And so conditional unity actually agrees with a lot of what dichotomy would have to say. But where conditional unity has a severe advantage is that it protects us from a lot of potential false teachings because it more accurately represents how our bodies and souls engage with one another. Now, I'm not going to read it, but in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, this is when Christ is writing judgment to these churches. And one of these churches is having a problem. And the overwhelming belief about this church's problem is that they were following this false teacher who was believing or teaching a very popular thing in that day. And that is that your soul and your body were two completely separate things, like a car and its driver. So much so that they were being told and they were practicing this idea that you could indulge in all of your physical desires without it having any impact whatsoever on your soul, on your spiritual component. And, you know, Christ is writing a condemnation on what they were doing and what they were allowing to be taught in this church. And now, again, dichotomy would totally agree with that. And I told you last time, that is my number one, personally speaking, my number one problem with the view of human beings being body and soul as two separate entities is that, you know, the whole thing about heaven and hell, that's one thing. But the reality is that it sets our souls against our bodies. It sees them as so other from one another that it completely discredits God's whole purpose in creating our bodies, and it elevates our spiritual side 
to a level that it was not meant to be elevated to in terms of balancing our physical and spiritual. And so this false teaching that was being dealt with here is, I mean, we see it even today. I mean, we see it throughout history, just reflavored ultimately, because as people, we want to say that, you know, this physical world is so different from the spiritual, but conditional unity says, no, we can't indulge our physical desires because that will directly impact the health of our soul. Just like if we entertain things in our soul that is sinful, it's going to have an impact on our physical bodies. So let us summarize this and let's maybe summarize it in light of dichotomy and how they are different. Because while it doesn't really come down to dichotomy versus conditional unity, for a lot of our minds, it's going to, because like I said, dichotomy matches what we see in God's word so much more than us being made of three parts and especially much more than us being made of just physical bodies. So the first thing to really ask ourselves, having looked at everything is, is this really the same as dichotomy? And the answer is no, because if we're going to be consistent with what dichotomy has to believe, then separating the soul and the body makes no sense based on what we've discussed. Because again, if we are just souls driving a body, then death shouldn't actually matter that much. Death is not this wildly unnatural thing. It's just a thing. But conditional unity says that death is so abhorrent to God's plan. It's so against nature that part of God's plan of redemption was to physically redeem us as well, to give us those new and glorified bodies that we've looked at. We've also looked at how conditional unity helps to us to better understand the origin of the soul and how it entwines with physical DNA, whereas dichotomy can't provide a good answer for how something that is purely physical can also have attached to it somehow a piece of the spiritual, whereas with conditional unity, it makes perfect sense because the physical and the spiritual are one single thing. We also looked at like I said, the biggest piece of evidence that really swayed my understanding of this, and that is how physical and spiritual suffering are so closely linked and in such relationship to one another that, again, if we are just a person driving a car, it makes no sense that one should have such a massive impact on the other for good or for bad. We looked at just some evidence on why life is more precious and how we have a more refined or fuller understanding of why God values human physical lives and why we as his people need to love and value them as well. We have seen why our physical resurrection and our representation before God for judgment or to reign with Christ physically on the earth, why only conditional unity helps make sense that God isn't doing something random. He's not doing something mysterious. He is bringing us back to wholeness and to completion. On top of that, conditional unity helps us understand the eternal destiny of all bodies and souls. Because in, having, in, in resurrecting everyone and letting them stand before God completely, we realize that we couldn't just stand before God as souls, or we couldn't just live forever as souls, whether in heaven or in hell, because our whole person, our whole self needs to be judged and sentenced to wherever God will have us, either an eternity in the new heaven and earth with him, or 
being thrown into the lake of fire, not just souls, but body as well. And then lastly, we just looked at how really at the end of the day, while this is not dichotomy, it does agree with a lot of what dichotomy says while avoiding many of the pitfalls that dichotomy presents. So if you can't tell for how long this episode is already, I believe there's an overwhelming amount of evidence for why conditional unity, although it's weird, although it's different, although it's difficult, why, biblically speaking, it is the most consistent with everything that God has revealed in his word. But I do want to be fair, and I do want to talk about some problems that it does run into. And so, starting off with, you can go through all the supports I've given, and you can just disagree with them. And those would be some cons to it, because you could say, well, no, that isn't what that means. That isn't what that proves. But in addition to those, here are some other issues that are presented from an understanding of conditional unity. The first one is that it wildly diminishes the excitement of heaven, because Maybe you were listening to this and maybe you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because when you first hear that heaven isn't forever, it kind of rattles a lot of what we've been told growing up in church and a lot of what we have to look forward to. And even it changes some things that we've told others when we're sharing Jesus Christ with them. And we say, you know, you'll get to spend eternity in heaven. It can make us feel foolish. It can make us feel like liars. I don't want you to go there. We are all going to make mistakes. This podcast I assume five, 10 years from now is going to be evidence of throughout all these different episodes so far. I mean, right now I'm on episode 72. There's going to be stuff in here that I have said wrong over the years, and it's going to be corrected as my own understanding of God's word is refined and matured. So if you're hearing this and maybe feel embarrassed, I don't want you to go there. But another problem with how we view heaven is that it really changes what we think heaven's going to be like, because just to, to put it very directly, we are going to feel incomplete in heaven. And we see this very weird tension of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. And what we're going to see is that on one hand, Paul's talking about how we are looking forward to these, these current broken bodies being destroyed so that we can have our glorified bodies. But he's also going to be talking about how there will be joy in heaven, how we will we are looking forward to being in front of our God. So verses one to four says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that is not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So here, the big point he's driving at is that right now we are in these bodies, but we are looking forward to our new bodies, not to, like I said, not to be naked, not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, to be better clothed. And this metaphor he's getting at here is that we're, we aren't waiting to shed our physical bodies and be free of them, but instead to get better bodies, to be further set in the perfection that God has for us, both as physical and spiritual beings together. But then he also talks about something else we're looking forward to, and that is our presence with God. And is he talking about in the new heavens and new earth, or is he talking about heaven? And that is a a struggle that those with conditional unity need to answer is, are we really going to feel incomplete? Are we really going to feel like we're suffering or lacking in heaven? 
Because as we go on here and read verses 6 to 10, it says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So I don't want to dwell on this too hard, but that is a tension. That is a struggle that he talks about excitement and hope and that we want to be away from these bodies so that we can be present with God. And what does that mean? And does that speak directly against conditional unity? Another problem with conditional unity is that if we're honest, it is very, very frustrating. It is logically frustrating in terms of trying to understand, okay, how does this actually work? And it is philosophically frustrating. And by that, I mean, we ask what if questions about, okay, if conditional unity is true, then what about this? What about that? How does that impact, you know, morality and things like that? So let me explain what I mean. Earlier on, I tried to use the color green to explain how we could understand how the body and the soul are different things, but they are blended together in such a way that they have to be together to make a whole color or a whole person. But that's not how we experience life. I said that it was an incomplete example, and I really meant it because we aren't just here. We are existing. And are we really existing where our physical and spiritual bodies are constant or our physical and spiritual components are constantly boosting one another or hindering one another? Is that really what we're experiencing? Can we really not be separated? I mean, really think about it. Do you think right now that if you were dead and your soul was apart from your body, don't you feel like, or don't you think that you would experience things roughly the same way? I mean, the sensory aspect would be different, but you would still have your same thoughts, your same emotions. All that would change is that we can't actually use our, our minds to interact with the world around us. We can't see things, we can't smell and taste and things like that, but do we really think that it's going to be that bad? Another issue is that as you're listening to this, as you're thinking, as you're engaging with the world, you feel like your consciousness is central within you. A lot of us, we think, we hear, we picture things all in this area, this space behind our eyeballs. And we, I think naturally and maybe rightly, assume that that is kind of where our soul is housed, that we have this whole body that is controlled by our brain, but our brain is really the only thing affected and impacted by our soul. So what is our soul doing in conditional unity if it's in our toes, if it's in our hair? Like, how does our soul seem to be fully spread throughout our bodies, but yet we'd say the true thing of who we are, our real thoughts take place in one specific point. And on top of that, our emotions, what we truly believe, what we truly feel, we don't feel it in our kneecaps. We don't feel it in our rib. We feel things in in a place that is not physical. And so if our soul is truly all that we are, that makes sense why everything that we experience would feel that way. So those are some logical things that we can bump our heads up against. But philosophically speaking, it also adds some questions. What about organ donation? If I give my pancreas to someone, assuming you can give a pancreas, I am not a doctor. Please don't take this as medical advice to give your pancreas to someone. But if I give my pancreas to someone, 
Am I giving them a piece of my soul? Is my DNA physically melding with theirs and therefore my spiritual DNA is somehow also engaging with somebody else's soul? What about receiving one? Is it right for a follower of Jesus Christ to accept ultimately a piece of somebody's soul body into them? Because again, if our consciousness, if our soul is housed in our brain area, it makes sense to say, oh, well, it's just a physical body. It's just a, it's just a part replacement. Of course we can. But if we are truly believing that all of a person's DNA has a spiritual component attached to it and linked to it, not just hanging on to it like someone riding a horse, but literally is not meant to be separated because they are so entwined. Is it biblical? Is it right? Is it God's desire for us to take that person's piece of soul into us? This also introduces questions about human cloning. If we clone a person... Physically, are we also going to clone their soul? Can we? And what does that mean for the future of science and what it can or can't do or shouldn't do? What about things like brain injuries? You know, if someone gets in a car accident and it damages their brain in such a way that it changes their personality, would we also say that that person's soul has been changed? If someone goes from being, you know, just a normal person, you know, they love their family, they work hard to being someone who is constantly angry or violent. Is that a physical thing or is that their soul responding and reacting? Has their soul been changed at a fundamental level to be completely different? Or let's think about addictions. Are addictions a matter of our physical bodies negatively impacting our souls or is it a matter of our souls being sick and giving a physical craving and desire or just anything in general what spiritual issues are truly tied to our body chemistry is everything a spiritual issue that affects us physically or are there physical problems that have nothing to do with our soul you know are we angry do we have addictions do we have desires do we have feelings that aren't a result of sin because conditional unity would have to make the argument that they are effectively the same thing where any addiction you suffer, any mental health struggle you have is all or primarily most often going to be a spiritual issue and any physical issues you're experiencing are actually changing your soul in some way. And those are just some of the ways that the more we think about conditional unity, the harder it can get to really wrap our minds around it. You know, you've maybe heard the phrase mo money, mo problems and when it comes to conditional unity, I will be honest and say that it's a matter of more thinking, more frustration, because it seems like the more we try to really understand how this thing works with our limited minds, even if it's true. And again, I believe it's true. And I'm openly sharing some frustrations and wrestling that I've done myself. The more frustrating it is because it is so hard to understand and grasp because of how we think we're experiencing everything. But with all the frustrations and all the difficult questions attached to it, one thing worth asking is, is this just really a fascinating theory, a really cool idea with no practical potential? Are the questions that we ask from it so impossible that they themselves prove that conditional unity doesn't actually hold up under scrutiny? Or are they questions that we should dig deeper into to try to explain to the best of our understanding based on what God's word reveals? 
another simple con is that this is just not taught in the Bible. It's a very cut and dry argument to make against it. The theory is based on a lot of assumptions. It's taking an idea, it looks at what is revealed, and it lands on an idea that works well. Because like I said, from Genesis to Revelation, conditional unity really works. It makes a lot of sense. It explains things that we experience that otherwise don't make a whole lot of sense. But God never you know, reveals a chart that says, here is how I have put man together. And so that's a big blow against it is that we just don't see it clearly laid out. Now, the final one I want to share is that conditional unity isn't just not clearly laid out in the Bible in terms of God actually saying here is what is true. But it is a theory that, like I said, isn't really discussed in Christianity. Now, for some, that might not be a problem, but let me share where I'm coming from. So when I was in rebellion, I was saved, but I was in rebellion. I loved new ideas so much. I loved new takes on Christianity. I loved new ideas. I loved throwing away tradition and just entertaining any new idea that someone could come up with. As God has gotten a hold of me, as I have really surrendered to Christ, and as I have tried to grow in spiritual maturity, I've learned that there is a huge danger in latching on to new or exciting beliefs. We live in a culture that very much supports my idea that newer is definitely better, that tradition is suspicious, that it is untrustworthy, or that it is dangerous. And so as I've tried to be very watchful of myself, of my heart, and how I know I am tempted towards different beliefs, I've grown to be suspicious of anything that deviates from the norm. In other words, if something is not traditionally believed, I am going to maybe scrutinize it just a little bit more. And that's not because I think, you know, because it's tradition, we have to obey it. But instead, it's tradition for a reason. There is a reason why Christians throughout the last 2,000 years, all of whom have the exact same Holy Spirit living in them, have arrived at the same truth over and over again. Now, I will say that history is not that clean cut. And if you've read my series on the Catholic Church and how we went from the apostles to the Catholic Church to Protestantism, you know that there's a usually a good reason why a lot of good biblical traditions were messed up for such a long time. But again, like I said, this is not something that has been popular or pushed really at all for quite a while. And even in my own study, not just looking at, you know, easy blog articles and maybe the more easily approachable resources, but looking at scholarly articles, there was a severe lack of discussion of either conditional unity or holistic dualism, which, like I said, is maybe the more popular term for this belief. And even when I'm looking at discussions of what is man-made of, not just someone writing a paper literally on conditional unity, but someone who is talking about, here's what the Bible lays out as options. Here are the pros and cons of them, similar to what I've done here. It is rarely, if ever, mentioned that this is a possibility. Everyone always divides people into three clear-cut categories. Either we are one part, 
we are two parts or we are three. And those parts are clearly defined and clearly delineated in such a way that, as we've discussed, you can separate the soul from the body with no real issue. The soul and spirit, if you believe in a three-part person, are so clearly separated from one another. And at the end of the day, it is very hard to find anyone talking about this thing. Now, I don't want to sit here and argue with myself and saying, you know, here is why conditional unity is true, but here's why it's wrong. Oh, but here's how we can explain it's wrong. I try not to do that, but I think it is worth mentioning why just because it's not talked about a lot doesn't mean that it's inherently wrong, even by my own standards of being very careful not to just embrace new beliefs. And there are ultimately four reasons. First is that, again, this is not a new belief. This was written about officially back in the 1200s. And I think we can safely assume that it wasn't created back in the 1200s, but instead it is something that people had assumed, people had talked about. But at that time, that is when, as far back as we can find, that is when it was talked about. Another thing is that there's a difference between a belief being created and a belief being codified or, or very clearly defined. We see this with the Trinity. A lot of people have a problem understanding God as Trinity because they say, oh, it was invented hundreds of years after the Bible was written. And it wasn't, again, as far as the Trinity goes, it wasn't invented, but the Trinity had always been assumed, but it had never been under attack. It is only when the church finds a important and essential doctrine under attack that it says, okay, we need to clearly lay out, write down, and define what God's word reveals to us about this topic. And in the case of the Trinity, that is what had to happen. So again, conditional unity could fall under that same umbrella of it's just not something that people have really dug into because, let's be honest, was Jesus Christ created? Is God Trinity? Is the Bible true and accurate? Those are much more important questions that Christians have had to ask throughout history than how exactly do our physical and spiritual components work together? So it may just be that today we have come so far in theology that by standing on the shoulders of these giants who came before us, we can start asking this question. But another thing that I often have to remind myself of is that the Protestant Reformation rejected centuries of beliefs. So it's not unheard of within Christianity for tradition to be done away with or to be challenged or heavily modified. I mean, look at the five solas of the Reformation. These are beliefs that were lost for centuries, but they weren't new. They were just rediscovered. They were redefined. They were paid better attention to because they had come under such attack by what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church. And then finally, another reason why seeming new or not being talked about as much isn't necessarily proof that it's wrong is that if you believe that there is a rapture of the saints, if you believe that Christ will literally reign on the earth for thousands of years or for a thousand years, excuse me, then not too long ago, you would have been weird because that belief system is called dispensationalism. The idea that the book of Revelation is a literal thing. It's not figurative. It's not events that have happened in the past. But if you believe that the book of Revelation is talking about future events for centuries, that was not discussed. Nobody believed that for the longest time. Everyone believed that as we look back in history, the Catholic Church was kind of the fulfillment of everything and that the Catholic Church was God's kingdom on earth. Now, 
knowing what we know about the Catholic Church in hindsight, we can understand why that would have been pushed so much. But the point, though, is that a, a belief that Revelation is talking about future events was not a new thing that someone came up with in the last few decades, but instead it is a callback to something that early, early church fathers wrote about, but it had been lost because of a lot of things that happened in the past, really. But ultimately, I do want to say that it is really worth asking why a belief that seems to fill in so many gaps throughout the Bible, and it seems to best explain what we experience, why it's not talked about more, why it's not more widely believed. Is it because it's weird? Because it's not as easy to explain our bodies and souls when we can't say, well, you have a body and you have a soul and your soul is who you truly are. That's very easy. Anyone can really explain that. But to try to explain how you are a body and you are a soul, but you're not two things, you're one thing. And that one thing can be separated into two things, but you're not supposed to do that. And Jesus Christ in the future is going to come back and take those two things and put them back into one thing. That's not an easy explanation. And is that ultimately why it's not being discussed is because it's not of critical importance. And so why spend time trying to refine it and dig down and, and correct people's understanding of it when we can just talk about the body and the soul in ways that gives people the gospel and gets them focusing on the here and now and the things they need to understand. Again, maybe that's why. Maybe it is just such a difficult thing that it's not going to take off among people who are still just struggling to get in their Bibles regularly or to know how to understand and read their Bibles well and responsibly. Or maybe I am sitting here as someone who does hold to conditional unity, and I'm I'm like some guy wondering, you know, why don't more history books talk about how aliens really built the pyramids? And by that I mean, to me, it makes a lot of sense. It seems very sound and very solid. I believe that the evidence is there. But just like someone who believes that aliens built the pyramids, everyone else is looking at them and just kind of shaking their heads and putting their head in their hands and saying, oh, this, this person, what a weirdo, what a loser. Why do they think that this is real? How can they not see the truth is clearly there? Why do they have to hold to the weird beliefs? Maybe those of us who hold to conditional unity are those weird alien conspiracy theorists. I don't know, but I do believe, yes, truly, it is worth, worth asking why. You know, if you've been in the church for a few years, for decades, maybe you grew up in the church. Why is this the first time that so many people in this who are listening to this episode right now, why is this the first time they're hearing about it? Should that cause some concern about the validity of what we're talking about? But all that being said, let's wrap this up. Not just the episode, but let's wrap up the series. This has been a difficult topic to discuss. Over the course of four episodes, I have tried to give a very thorough examination of all the points. I've tried to take something that people write whole books about, and I've tried to distill it down in a way that is approachable and understandable for us. I have tried to challenge some deeply held beliefs by a lot of us and to push people out of their comfort zone and to push me out of my comfort zone and to really say this belief that I've never heard of or this belief that I've been convinced is wrong it does have some merit or to look at our previously held beliefs and say, this is what I've always believed. It's what I've always held on to, but 
I do see some real errors with it. And that's a hard thing. And I, I fully appreciate how difficult that is, especially because when we talk about the human soul as Christians, it has a big impact on how we think and how we talk about things. Maybe we don't get in depth as we did in these episodes, but we do talk about our bodies and our souls and maybe our spirits in very certain ways and in very certain terms with other people, both believers and unbelievers. And we speak about them in ways that matter. And it can be hard to look at these conversations we've had, these beliefs we've held, maybe even things that we've fought for or debated with others about and see that after you know a thorough hopefully more objective examination, maybe what we thought was true doesn't hold as much weight as we once thought. And that really we've held on to these things because it's just what we were taught one time by somebody or it's what we've just always assumed. And so the discussion of the human soul with this one, and even with my previous topic where we talked about where souls come from, make no mistake. These are fascinating topics. You know, I hope it comes through despite how tired I am by the end of these episodes, because my, you know, it's just so taxing on me to discuss, but they are, they're fascinating. I love talking about things like this, but while my goal is to teach you and to equip you to think about these specific topics and, and where your beliefs fall, ultimately, as always, I have had greater desires with this series. My first desire is that people listening would not just accept what's comfortable or familiar, but instead that they would seek God's word for truth. Whatever it says, whatever difficulties we may have wrestling with it, we want to make God's truth our highest priority. We want it to be what gives us an understanding of all things, but in this case, how our soul and bodies work together. I also wanted to really encourage people to make sure that their truth fits with all truth. And that's why a big thing I kept kind of hammering on were inconsistencies that we see with these different beliefs. And I even tried to hammer on that with conditional unity is that there are some kind of logical and philosophical problems that we really have to wrestle with if we're going to hold to this, that even me, like I said, someone who does believe it, I understand and appreciate that it is hard to make it all fit together. Not that we're forcing a thing, but there are things that seem like they may not line up perfectly on first examination. And so wherever you're falling on your understanding of the soul and the body, make sure that what you're believing, you really do honestly look not just at the evidence that we see in scripture, but ways that this belief is going to impact other areas of our thought, of our theology, and of our understanding of God. And making sure that everything that we believe is consistent and any areas of inconsistency, we acknowledge and admit and can have an understanding or an explanation for to one degree or another. Again, fully understanding that we are finite, limited human beings trying to understand how a perfect and infinite God has designed a creature that is so complex. But ultimately, as always, with, I hope, everything that I create, my greatest desire was to equip you to think biblically about this area of your life so that you would know why you believe what you believe. Because I don't want you just to listen and say, oh, that sounds good. If I just, you know, regurgitate what Ray said, then I'm going to know 
my beliefs. No, I want you to know not just what you believe. I don't want you to just be able to argue with someone. I want you to know why it is that you believe what you believe about everything, but especially, or in this case, why you believe what you believe about how you are made, how your physical and spiritual components work together. So wherever you fall, my desire is that you are biblically equipped to think about it through the lens of God's word and nothing else. So last thing I want to say is that wherever you fall on how God designed our physical and spiritual components, make sure that your greatest desire is to glorify God by being a good student of his word. Use this series to dig deeper into what God reveals, even if it doesn't line up with what you want to believe. And in the end, I hope you can rest knowing that you aren't holding beliefs based on tradition or because they're familiar, but you're holding those beliefs because you're convinced through your study of God's word that there's nothing else that you could possibly believe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 